our Christmas series this morning. And so uh, before I tell you where to open your Bibles to, uh, I want to kind of just um, give you a prequel, if I can do that. Give you a little bit of a picture of what we're going to do uh, in this Christmas season. So the challenge with Christmas is uh, where do you go to talk about the Christmas story? And, and you pretty much go to Matthew and Luke. And then you go to Matthew, and then you go to Luke, and then you go to Matthew, and then you go to Luke. Uh, I want to try to do something a little bit different this year, uh, and that's give us a bigger picture. Give us a bigger picture of the, the scope of the Christmas story in terms of just how early in the plan and purpose of God uh, he began to tell us about the Christmas that was coming. Uh, and so we're going to kind of take a step back. We're going to kind of look at the big picture. If you want to think of it this way, we're, we're going to fly at, at 10,000 feet uh, as opposed to the way we've been going through Romans where we've been maybe at 10 feet. Uh, so we, we're going to kind of actually just take your Bibles, if you would, and open up to the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis 3, uh, chapter 15, uh, verse 15, Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 15. And uh, you're going to have to maybe just uh, keep your fingers uh, ready to flip uh, if you need to lick them so the pages don't stick. Uh, that's fine. We are going to go a little bit quicker. And again, it just I'm going to paint with some very broad uh, brush strokes today. And because what I want us to do is I want us to see uh, the promises of Christmas in Scripture. And so that's kind of what I've, I've entitled this Christmas mini-series, The Promises. Uh, so we're going to look at, at the promise of the seed. Uh, next uh, week, we'll look at the promise of the tabernacle. And you'll say, well, what does that have to do with Christmas? And I'm saying, well, wait until next week. That's just the teaser. Uh, and then we're going to look at the promise of the, the servant uh, in Isaiah for two uh, weeks. Uh, actually, it's the promise of light and then the promise of the servant, both from Isaiah. Uh, so we, again, are doing kind of a big picture. Uh, we are going to be uh, flipping to the New Testament as well. So I'm doing a bit of Old Testament and a bit of New Testament. We're also going to, in our uh, worship um, scripture reading, we're actually going to read uh, the scripture uh, stories from Mark and, or excuse me, from Luke and Matthew about the birth of Jesus. So you'll be getting all of that. Uh, I'm just going to go to at a different kind of angle in the preaching of this big picture. Let's uh, let's start with a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us from your word. We ask that we would uh, delight ourselves in your word and what you do in and through your word. Uh, we pray that you would um, just guide us and direct us. Give us uh, a, a vision of the scope and breadth of Scripture, just how awesome it is that you have given us your word, both Old and New Testament. And as we look at your word today, may your Holy Spirit uh, just be at work in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 and follow along as I'm going to read verses 8 through 15. But we're primarily focusing on verse 15. Now, we could continue. The chapter goes on beyond 15, verse 15. Uh, but I'm just going to cut it off there because this is our main focus. And this is after, by the way, Adam and Eve had been tempted by the serpent. They ate the fruit uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, they realized they were shameful and naked. It was the first sin. And then it says this in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among trees of the garden. But the Lord called the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the beasts of the field uh, on your belly. You shall go and dust you shall eat. And the day all the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Some of your translations are a little bit more literal there. 
they will say uh, in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, that's the literal word, and we translate it offspring, and her seed. And so what we want to talk about this morning is the promise of the seed. This is actually a promise here of the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, what we need to keep in mind is this is not the full uh, promise. As as the scriptures unfold, uh, just like a, a story might unfold, more details are given along the way. If you've ever read a good mystery novel, uh, the writer will give you clues and the writer will kind of telegraph and, and leave you to say, gee, I can see what is coming together, what this uh, murderer is like. And sometimes even after you discover who committed the crime, you look back at some of the earlier chapters and you go, oh, wow, he was pointing to that the whole time. Well, not that Scripture is a murder mystery and not that Scripture is made up fiction, but Scripture functions in, in a similar way in that God gives us prophecies early on and clues so that when Jesus comes, when Jesus is born in the manger, people should recognize that he is the Messiah. When he begins his ministry, they should see the things that he is fulfilling. When he dies on the cross, they should recognize this is what the Old Testament said would happen. Of course, we know that that many people did not recognize it and Jesus had to use the scriptures uh, to open their eyes. But the point being that this is literally in Scripture the first prophecy that we have that a Savior will come. So it is the promise of the seed. We want to have three points this morning. Uh, There's simply going to be the promise given, uh, the promise expanded, and then the promise fulfilled. So the promise given is, is in this chapter. Uh, but what I want to do also is back up a little bit. We, Like I said, we are going to be doing a whirlwind tour kind of, of, of Scripture. And I hope what it allows you to do, whether you're young in the faith or whether you've been a Christian uh, longer than some of us have been alive, you just get a joy in seeing what God has laid out for us uh, in his word and how it centers on the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. So flip with me, if you will, back to uh, Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 28. God makes human beings. The creation of humanity, human beings are created in the image of God. God made us. God delights in those that he makes. Of all the creation, uh, he looks and, and says of human beings, Adam and Eve, this is very good. And so we have in verses 26 to 28, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds and the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in the image, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, and God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish and the sea, uh, fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on earth. So kind of the imagery here in, in Genesis one and two is that God is a king and God makes heaven and earth. But then what he does is he makes not only forms the earth and fills it with things, He makes human beings. And this language here of giving them dominion is is a way of saying that God gave to human beings a a delegated kingship. It's kind of like having a, a king or president and then putting a governor of a local region under that high king. God is the high king. He sits in heaven, which he's created. He rules from heaven, as we said from Psalm 99. He's exalted over all things. But what does he do for his creation? He puts man and men and women, human beings, to be those who take care of creation, who are the faithful rulers and carers for it. He makes them a little king and queen. 
Uh, we could call them vice regents, meaning they're under the head regent who is God. And so you see this in Psalm 8. You have made him, this is humanity, man, a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Uh, just as an example, we've been reading through the book of Genesis. And you'll remember when Joseph is given the authority to to take care of and administer the land of Egypt uh, during the famine in preparation for the famine. And do you remember what Pharaoh says? There will be no one higher in the land to me than you. Or did I say that right? Basically, I'm the highest and you're the second highest. And everybody that wants to come to me can come through you first. He gives Joseph all of the authority except for the authority that he has. He makes Joseph a vice regent. Basically, take care of the land, rule it, care for it, uh, administer it properly, prepare for the famine. I'm the high king. You are like my right hand man. And so this is how God sets up humanity. I'm the high king, but I'm making you a little lower than me, but I'm crowning you with glory and honor. And I've given you dominion, rulership, authority over the works of my hands. I've put everything under your feet, he says. And so in Genesis 2.15, it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Here the imagery is that the Adam in the garden is like a priest. Those are the same two words to work and to keep that the Levites were told to take care of God's tabernacle, work in it and keep it. It's like saying this is God's house. This is where God dwells. God is going to come down and, and walk in the garden and fellowship with man, just like he came down uh, into the tabernacle and his glory dwelled there. And what is the role of man? Not only to have dominion over the creation, not only to have fellowship with God, but tend the place where God is going to walk. It's, it's a great honor. It's a great privilege. And then they are blessed and told to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, they will have descendants. They will have seeds. They will have offspring and heirs that will continue with this task. Then, of course, we know what happens next. The fall of man. Human beings sin and disobey God. You see, God in the garden gave them one command, right? He said, look, you can eat of every tree that's in here, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that idea of the knowledge of good and evil was this idea of don't you decide for yourself what is right and wrong. Uh, kings in the Old Testament were described as knowing good and evil when they when they make uh, judgments. And the idea is, as this king and priest in the garden, what is man's job? Obey God. Don't think that you know right and wrong by your own standards. And that was the test. Are you going to try to do it your way? Go and eat the tree, even though God said don't do it. Or are you going to follow God and do it God's way? And of course, we know uh, what happens. The serpent comes in, which is a symbol of Satan here. And, and he tempts Adam and Eve. Uh, and he tempts Eve first. And then Eve eats the fruit. And then she shares it with her husband. And they're both uh, culpable here. And so we call this the fall. We call it the fall because we were created in a state of innocence. It was good in the garden. And we fell away from that goodness. Sin enters the world through the acts of Adam and Eve and death enters then through sin. And then we see in verse eight of Genesis chapter three, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Just a word about the cool of the day phrase there. The, the little translation would be something like the wind of the day or perhaps uh, the spirit of the day. So we translate it oftentimes the cool of the day, but that sort of makes it sound like there's this this gentle breeze blowing 
And oh, it's so sweet. And here comes God and, and he's coming to hang out with his children. And and they're like, oh, no, we've just sinned. But the, the idea here, I think, of, of the wind of the day or perhaps the spirit of the day is the idea of judgment, of storm. And, and part of the reason I say this is because this language of, of wind here and this language of voice or, or sound is often used to describe when God appears in what we call theophanies, where he comes down in these clouds and there's thunder and lightning, just like he comes down onto to Mount Sinai and his glory dwells there. And the people of God are below Mount Sinai. And it says they heard the sound And the English translate, they heard the thunder that the presence of God was here and there was a holy fear because God is perfect and righteous in all of his ways. And so we have in Exodus 20:18. And when the people saw the thunder or we could translate it, saw the voice and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet or the voice of the trumpet of the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. Psalm 77, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth voice or thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. Literally, your arrows walked. The crash of your voice was in the whirlwind. Your lighting, lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. The idea here is not that God comes for a casual stroll in the, the breeze of the day. But rather, he comes in this storming cloud where his voice is heard with this booming. Where are you? Why do they tremble? Because suddenly they realize they have sinned and they are about to encounter a holy God. It's not like God didn't know they had sinned until God, until they told God. God comes and it's sort of a prototype of what it'll be like when God comes in judgment. He comes to confront the sinner here. And it's scary. And Adam and Eve run and and they hide. And so we have God then beginning to address sin. And he does two things. One, he curses the creation. And we're not going to talk about all the curses other than to say death comes into creation at this point. Why is it that people die? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why is it that there is death in creation and death is painful when we lose someone and it's horrid and it's not a pretty thing? If you've ever lost a loved one to any sort of disease, you know just how um, draining it is emotionally, physically, how horrible it is to watch what they go through. And we need to understand this was not God's original intent for creation. This is the result of our sin. And God's plan is to fix this. And he's going to fix it in the resurrection. And he's going to fix it in the new creations, the new heavens and the new earth. But the way that he is going to fix it is through the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who became a baby and was born of the Virgin Mary. And that's why we celebrate Christmas, because God is fixing things. And he begins to fix it on the cross when the son is put up there and he dies to pay the penalty for our sins. The basic storyline of the Bible is creation, fall and redemption. And you could add restoration after redemption. The first two, creation and fall, are the first three chapters of Genesis. Redemption is pretty much the whole rest of the Bible. And restoration is what happens at the end. You have a few places in the prophets in the Old Testament and you have the book of Revelation and a few other places in the New Testament. But if you had to plot all the key things that happen in the Bible in a very short, simple four words, creation, fall, redemption and restoration and everything else in our Bibles fits inside of that line of events. 
It's one of those four areas, if we can put it that way. And so what is the promise? So we've said the creation is cursed, but but what is the hope here? Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and your her offspring. He is speaking here to Satan, who has taken the form of a serpent to tempt Adam and Eve. He says to them, he, this offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the serpent is cursed. The defeat of the serpent is sealed. By the way, this is not a statement about why people hate snakes. The point of this story, if you ever watch Indiana Jones, you remember he's the character in the movie. And he, well, what does he always say? I hate snakes. I remember a situation when I was a little kid. We were playing in the garden. We were playing actually in a rock pile where we build, build our fort. And uh, we turned over some rocks. And I remember this snake coming out. And it was a little garter snake. But I have this very vivid memory of running through the garden and seeing the snake slither. And, and in my mind, the snake was like as big as an anaconda. And there's this giant head there and he's running along and I'm running parallel going like, ah, I got to get out ahead of him. I did not like snakes when I was a kid. But that's not the point of the story. The point is Satan, who manifested himself as a snake, will be defeated. This is actually the first preaching of the gospel. The first time in Scripture the gospel is ever preached is right here in Genesis 3.15. Right from the very beginning, God says and promises, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to take care of this. Satan, Mr. Serpent, your fate is sealed. Your defeat is assured. And as you read the rest of the Bible, you can read that with it in mind. There's all this conflict and all of this tension and all of this. Who's going to win? The bad guys or the good guys? And sometimes in the individual stories, the bad guys do seem to win. It's, it's just like life. There isn't always sometimes in the individual stories a happy ending that we'd like. But in the overarching story, the final story, the story that guides all of these events, Satan's defeat is assured. That's why over and over again in the scriptures, the challenge to God's people is to trust God, to trust him, that he will win the battle, that his purposes will come to fruition. And so we have it here. Uh, the serpent seeds are not a literal uh, baby snakes, but rather those who are like the serpent. Those who are evil and wicked. Jesus says in John 8.44, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so here Jesus is saying to the Pharisees of all people, the religious, you're the seed of Satan. He's your father. You're on team Satan. You're on that side of this battle between the two, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. You are wicked like and and uh, yeah, you're wicked like Satan was wicked and an offspring then of the devil. He's your father. Of course, for the woman, the seed is going to be both a literal seed She's going to have babies, children, offspring, but it also is going to be figurative in that those who are godly and walk according to the ways of God are part of this promise of the seed or the offspring. And so what we have here in this passage is uh, the promise of Jesus. Notice one thing, if you will, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Uh, actually, notice two things. One, the word offspring or seed is what we call a collective noun. When I say seed, am I talking about one seed or a pile of seed? If I have a pile of seed in the English language, I would say there is my seed. 
I have one seed, I could say there is my seed. It's what we call a collective noun. We don't have to necessarily say there are seeds, plural with an S. So there's a little bit of ambiguity here. And we know that that the woman is going to have multiple descendants. And for example, as we'll see with Abraham, he has multiple descendants and many uh, seeds. But then it says something very specific. It says he singular. He shall bruise your head. It's a very specific promise that there will be a he, a person, one individual who will destroy and defeat Satan. And there's this awesome, powerful imagery here of of this individual, this seed of the woman will crush Satan's head. You, you think of stomping on a snake. I know that may sound kind of gross and, and some of you don't like that imagery there, but, but just think about it for a second. When you stomp on the head of the snake, it's done. It's over with. And what is the snake going to do? It's going to bite the heel. Think of it just like a little nip. You ever have a dog like nip at your ankle, like one of those tiny little dogs like my dog, and they just yap, 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 and they yeah, yeah. You know, what, what do they do when, they, when, it, when a small mouth nips at the ankle? It's really nothing. And you just, not for your dog, but for this snake, you just bring your foot down on the snake and you crush it. That is how um, despair. Yeah, that is how different the levels of, of power are going to be. The levels of strength and authority. Here's the king and he's just going to step on this snake. Here's the little snake just yip, chip, trying to bite at the heel. That's how certain the defeat is. We need to remember in the Bible, good and evil are not equal opposites. It's not this tension of, well, gee, which one is going to win? Yes, sometimes in the scriptures you see this back and forth. But they aren't equal powers. Because God is the ultimate good. And God has no equal. And He will send His Son, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, and He will defeat sin and death and the evil one. And that is the promise of Christmas. The promise is that one day a seed or descendant would come who would fully and finally defeat the serpent. And so we have in Hebrews chapter two, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took of the same things that though that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and he might deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why is there Christmas? Why does Jesus, the eternal son of God, become a little baby? He becomes truly flesh and blood, even though he's truly God and has existed for all eternity past. Why come into the world as a baby on that first Christmas? Because God loves the world. And he's sending his son to die for sinners. And because we as children have flesh and blood, Jesus Christ becomes just like us in every respect. True flesh, true blood being born of the virgin in that tiny manger so that he might defeat Satan and the devil. This one who had first appeared in Genesis 3 to try to overthrow mankind. Let me say this just sort of as an application this morning as we're going along the way here. Let's be careful that we don't sentimentalize Christmas. I mean, it's good to have sentiment at Christmas. It's good to reflect on the true story. It's good to share presents. It's good to gather with friends and family. But sometimes we we look at Christmas and all we think about is the cute baby in the manger. And I mean, who doesn't like babies? And we just all kind of go, oh, look at look at how Jesus would have been. And we think of how our own children were little. And we we sing those wonderful songs about how how Mary uh, swaddled him in the manger. All of that is good and excellent. But remember why Jesus came. He comes in innocence and he comes as a baby. 
but he's coming to do battle. He's coming to lay down his life for his people. To die on the cross. There are consequences that hang in the balance here. And Christ is going to win a war. And so this tiny baby grows up and dies on the cross and rises again from the dead. When you think of Christmas, don't just stop the telling of Christmas at the story of the baby. Because the story of the baby, of who Jesus was in that manger, means nothing without understanding what he had come to do. The promise. And in fact, he is going to fulfill the destiny of humanity. Remember how human beings were stated, uh, set up to reign over the creation? What does Jesus do now? He reigns. Scripture says that all things are put under his feet. He is crowned with glory and honor. He becomes the true fulfillment of Psalm 8. He does what you and I in our sin could not do. So that not only does he take my place on the cross, he fulfills the destiny that was given to us in Genesis 1. He rules. And he rules as a human king, as a descendant of the line of David, the Messiah, if we're thinking about how all these promises unpack themselves. And here's the kicker. If we come to Jesus and believe in him and bend our knee and worship him, we become an heir of his kingdom. The kingdom that he won on the cross in his resurrection, we become like kings and queens in the kingdom, in the new heavens and the new earth. All that God had destined for us in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 becomes fulfilled through Jesus. And if I believe in Jesus, I can be a partaker in it. That is why Christmas is important. Jesus had to become like us so that we could become like him in our moral character. So that we could have a heritage with him that he has won for us. That's why we celebrate Christmas. And I think sometimes when we tell the story of Christmas, we, we, we just tell the short and narrow version. We don't tell the whole story. We don't tell the big picture. I think also in, in the church, we often just don't know our Old Testaments. We only talk about the New Testament. And really, if you want to understand the Old Testament, you do have to know the New Testament. But if you want to understand the New Testament, you also have to know the Old Testament. It's a it's a circular type of relationship. And all of it is the word of God. The Old Testament is the promises that are coming. The New Testament is how the promises have been fulfilled or will yet be fulfilled. But it all centers around Jesus. And I don't think it's too bold of a statement to say that it all centers around Christmas in a way. Provided that we mean Christmas, but also the rest of the story of Jesus. Christmas is vital just as this promise in Genesis is vital. I'm going to pick up the pace here a little bit, and you're going to get a whirlwind tour of Genesis. But I want to show you how the promise is expanded. So here's where you open your Bible apps and get ready to flip through or lick your fingers because we're going to flip some pages. What I want you to see, though, is that the book of Genesis unpacks the promise of the seed. And, and the structure of Genesis is actually aligned around this idea of descendants and generations. So you have in chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations. You have in 5.1, these are the generations of Adam. In 6.9, these are the generations of Noah. The idea is whose line is it? Whose seed? Who are the heirs? So flip over now to Genesis chapter 12. Verses 1 through 3. And I want you to see the promises of Abraham. We're going to look at several of these promises. And I can't unpack it all, but I want you to see the big picture. So you have these 
physical children of Eve, right? And her, her children had children, and her children had children. And you get down to Noah, then you have the flood, and then after Noah, you have the expansion again, the Tower of Babel. You have Abram all of a sudden. And his great, 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 and however many greats we go back, grandmother is obviously Eve. Because if we go back far enough, we all come from Eve, right? So here we have in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will... Uh, and, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here the idea is I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to make you special. You're going to be a blessing. But also your blessing will go to the whole world. All the families of the earth, all the nations, all peoples, tongues, tribe, race will be blessed because of Abraham. I mean, that is pretty special. Flip over to Genesis chapter 15. Again, I'm just hitting the highlights, if you will. This is a little later on. And Abraham says this to the Lord. Behold, you have given me no offspring. Literally, you have given me no seed. Where have we heard that word before? Abraham's saying, I don't have any descendants. How's this promise going to continue to my family? How can I become a great nation if I can't even have one kid? And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, because Abram's ready to make his servant the heir, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. As he brought him outside and said, look towards the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring, so shall your seed be. And he believed, Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. You will have a seed. The promise of the descendant, the promise of the seed that will defeat Satan is coming now through the line of Abram, who gets his name changed to Abraham. And Abraham becomes the father of the nation of Israel. And so somewhere in the line of Israel, in the descendants of the nation of Israel, someone will come who will defeat this serpent and be the seed. Genesis 17, verse 5 through 7. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations and make you exceedingly fruitful, which, by the way, that be fruitful and multiply. Part of the promise is now being fulfilled in in Abraham and passed on to him. He continues, I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, your offspring after you, your seed after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. Genesis 17:16. speaking of Sarah, I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of the peoples shall come from her. Flip over to Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 through 18. And he said, by myself, I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this. This is right after Isaac was offered up as a sacrifice and God spared him because you are you have done this or were willing to do it. You have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and multiply your your seed as the stars of the heaven, as is the sand of the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates of his enemies, and your seed, uh, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So here, this seed of Abraham is going to do what? Defeat enemies. Who are the enemies ultimately going to be? Those who are wicked. Those who are spiritually the seed of Satan. And so Abraham's seed or descendant shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And so we just kind of skip ahead and uh, Israel is given the promised land. It's a land flowing of milk and honey. It's kind of like a new Garden of Eden. And they go in and who do they have to what do they have to do? They have to drive out the wicked. 
The good seed, the descendants of Abraham, need to defeat the bad seed, those who are walking in idolatry and sinfulness and the seed of, of Satan. And there's this interesting thing in Joshua. When they defeat the ten kings of the Amorites, they literally lay them down and put their feet on the king's necks. It's symbolism of defeat. But if you're paying attention to the storyline of the Bible and how all of the history is unfolding, you say, wait a minute. A seed defeating wickedness and wicked seed. We've heard that in Genesis. And then at the end of Joshua chapter 11, after they've done this with the kings, it says there was rest from war. There's rest in the promised land. It sort of reminds you of rest in the Garden of Eden. And so going back to what Jesus said to the Pharisees, remember how he called them? uh, Your father is Satan. Do you know what they had said to Jesus just about 10 verses earlier? We are the seed of Abraham. We're the godly ones. We're the heritage. Jesus says, no, your father is Satan. They said, we're on this side of the battle. Team God, the seed. Jesus says, no, you're on the other side of the battle. The seed of the serpent. If you're moving then through Genesis, the promise of this seed, of this king, is not just that kings will come from the line of Abraham, but there will be a specific king from the line of Judah. So if you flip over to Genesis chapter 49, Genesis 49, 8, 9 and 10. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is the lion's cub and the prey from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness dares, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor shall the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall the, be the obedience of the people. So a couple things. One, a king comes from Judah. This king is going to be a warrior. The lion's cub. This is why Jesus is called in the New Testament. What? The lion of Judah. The scepter rulership comes to the line of Judah. Jesus is described as bearing a scepter. And and this you can track this through the Old Testament. These promises made to David then that the Messiah will come from the line of David. There's this this narrowing down. Who's the descendant going to be? So that by the time we get to Jesus, we have all the pieces of the puzzle that we should know when this baby is born in the manger, when the angels announce him, this is the Messiah. He's born in Bethlehem. That's promised in the scriptures as well. The point being, you have the promise given. Genesis 3.15. And you have the promise expanded. I've just tracked it through Genesis, but you can track it through the rest of Scripture. Now we want to go to how is the promise fulfilled? For this, we're just going to very quickly go to the book of Galatians. Flip to Galatians all the way over to the New Testament. I'm just going to want to read just a few verses to you to show you that Jesus is the fulfillment of this seed, that he is the one who defeats Satan. I think we already kind of know that. But I want to show you how Scripture, just in case we missed the clues, points to that. Galatians chapter 3. And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. In other words, that God would save sinners who are also Gentiles. It says, preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand. In you, all the nations uh, will be blessed. In you shall all the nations be blessed. Genesis 3, Galatians 3, 8 says that this verse from Genesis is fulfilled by what Jesus did. Genesis 3.16 And the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring, literally, and his seed. It does not say to your seeds, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, 
and to your seed, who is Christ. Paul is saying that while Abraham had many physical descendants, many physical seeds, he had one heir who would fulfill the promise of being the seed. As Eve had many physical descendants, many offspring. I can't imagine how many great, great, great grandchildren she will have. She had one seed who would defeat the serpent. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that he might receive the adoptions as sons. The promise is fulfilled when in the fullness of time, the culmination of the plan and purpose of God, when all of this comes together, God sends his son at the right moment. The center of human history is Jesus coming. He comes to earth in a manger. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. But he comes to save us. He doesn't come to stay a cute baby. He comes as a baby, the eternal son of God, so that he might grow up, be like us in every respect, be perfect and obedient to the law, so that when he dies on the cross, he is innocent and perfect and can take our place, paying the penalty for our sins and our disobedience to God. Jesus crushes the serpent. Jesus crushes death in his cross and resurrection. And so Paul says in Romans 6.20, thinking about the future yet, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, why does Paul do that? Why does he say to the church under your feet? Didn't Jesus do all the work? Yeah. But do you see the true meaning of Christmas? That when I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I become a partaker of this promise. Jesus is the seed. Jesus is the fulfillment. But I get the blessing. I get to be on the winning team. And it's not because of anything I've done. It's not because I'm good. It's not because in my own power I could resist Satan or temptation or flee from sin. It's because Christ loved me and died for me and saved me from my sins. And if I put my faith and trust in him, I will go to heaven to be with him. And I will dwell in all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And one day, Satan will be crushed under the feet of God's people. Jesus being the king in the head. But me being a part of the body of Christ in a metaphorical sense there. Revelation chapter 12 kind of paints with a very broad brushstroke. Talking about Jesus and Israel and a number and the church and a number of things. But it says this, uh, speaking of the people of God, uh, this imagery, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in the heavens. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her a child, he might devour her. She gave birth to the male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Who's that, by the way? Jesus. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. You think of the events of his death, resurrection and ascension there. And then a few verses later, Revelation 12, 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. 
for the accuser of our brothers. Who's that? Satan has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, the brothers, the Christians, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. That is the outcome of Christmas. There's a lot of symbolic language in there. He's painting with a big picture brushstroke to to give you imagery to to get your minds around it. But what's the purpose of celebrating Christmas? One. Rejoice that Jesus keeps his promises. Sometimes we celebrate Christmas and we're always looking back at what Jesus did and we're thinking about the birthday that we're celebrating. But think about it this year from another perspective. How many people were long awaiting this promise? People lived and died and had children and lived and died and were still looking for the Messiah. They would have loved to know when the first Christmas was. We don't know the exact date and time of the first Christmas, but we do know it happened. They would have loved to know those things. Second, do not forget the purpose of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do think we we rob Christmas of some of its meaning when we don't recognize that the lasting value of Christmas is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that resurrection, he continues to be Emmanuel, God with us in human flesh, resurrected human flesh. Finally, tell the story of Christmas. The story is how God loves his people, how God loves the world, how God has a plan from the beginning to undo our own sin, our wickedness. Christmas is just one small piece of that plan that culminates in the cross. Without Christmas, the cross can't happen. But without the cross... Christmas doesn't mean nearly as much. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you today and we ask that you would speak to us from your word. I pray that Christmas would be joyous, that Christmas would be wonderful and delightful, that we would uh, fall in love with you. Even as we see that that Christmas is not just about what happens in, in Matthew and Luke, but these things were promised to us. Thousands of years before they happened, you were working this plan just even now as you are working all things according to the counsel of your will. Give us wisdom and guidance. Give us a greater love for Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the seed of the woman, the promised heir who crushes Satan through the cross and through your resurrection. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. We're going to come now and we're going to take communion this